Guys, I really do think that one of the most controversial words in our culture today is the word faith. At the very least, it is one of the most misused and misunderstood terms in the world around us. It is very easy for people who are outside of the church to misunderstand the term faith because it's used in all kinds of contexts where the word is, is abused and manipulated and treated in a way that it was never intended to be treated. So outside of the church, it's easy to misunderstand what we mean by faith. Oftentimes, inside of the church, it is also difficult for us to rightly understand or grasp the notion of faith. It's, it's one of these words that we use as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We use it a lot. And when we use a word or maybe overuse a word and we're using it, we don't think about it anymore. It, again, is easy for us to just sort of lose its impact, lose its power, lose what it's supposed to be for us. Some of you may have run into this yourselves, and I think we realize that oftentimes the word faith is used as a kind of insult to someone's intelligence. Faith is often equated with some version of blind faith. We just kind of shut our eyes, turn off our brains, and do what we think we're supposed to do. It's, it's a kind of insult, this matter of blind faith. It's the opposite of using your mind, your intelligence, or your reason. One of the more well-known atheists out there today, he, he makes a living often of sort of mocking the Christian faith in, the, in, in, uh, in what we believe. Richard Dawkins, he once said this about faith. He said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. This belief is common in our culture that we have this kind of continuum, that we have faith on one end of the spectrum, and we have reason and intelligence and science on the other end of the spectrum. And when you don't have any of those, all you have is faith. And the more you use your mind, the more you learn, the more you know, the more you are able to move along that scale, leave behind your faith, and pick up science and reason. Okay, this is a very common notion in our culture today. Mark Twain once famously said that faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's a little bit easier to remember than what Dawkins said, right? Now, sometimes Christians misunderstand and misuse the word faith as well. Sometimes we treat faith as a kind of magical incantation. If you have the right kind of faith, if you have enough faith, if you use the right words to express your faith, well, then God will give you stuff, and God will do stuff for you. If you have enough faith, God will, right? And it's treated like a magical incantation, and that is difficult territory to tread because then what's the flip side of that coin? If God's not giving you stuff, then you're the problem. You don't have enough faith. Guys, all of this is just not biblical. Now, thankfully, there is Scripture that says faith is, and then actually provides us a definition and a description of faith, and then an entire chapter in Scripture that tells us how that, flesh, that faith gets fleshed out or lived out in people's lives, and it's Hebrews chapter 11. So here are some of the big ideas of what we're going to deal with this morning as we read through a few verses of Hebrews 11. And the first just simply is this, faith is. 
So our passage begins with a kind of dictionary definition of faith. You look up a word in the dictionary, you look up a word online, and typically the first thing that you get is a very concise sentence that tries to describe what that idea primarily is about. Now, there's a lot of information in Scripture about what we mean by faith, but Hebrews 11.1 literally says, now faith is, and actually gives us a nice little concise sentence. What does this word actually mean? What does this idea have to do with my life and with my relationship with God? It turns out that faith is not just a religious expression. Faith is a necessary component of how all of us live all of the time. The question is not whether you will have faith. The question is what or in whom will you put your faith? That's the question. So faith is. Now, one of the big ideas of Hebrews 11, and if you haven't read Hebrews 11 a long time or you haven't read it all, I'd encourage you this week to just slowly chew through Hebrews 11 because one of the big ideas that you're going to discover is this. Faith prompts action. We do stuff. Hebrews just does not define faith by giving us some version of a dictionary definition. Hebrews defines faith by giving us examples of people who did stuff because of their faith in God. And that's the technical seminary theological phrase for this. They did stuff (laughs) because they had faith in God. And the stuff that people do when they have faith in God is astonishing. And there's stuff to learn from what they did. We're also going to learn this, that faith, biblical faith, is necessary for our relationship with God. There's actually a passage of Scripture we're going to read this morning that says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is necessary for our relationship with God. Now, once we get a grasp on that and what that means, how that works inside of me, how that works through my life, that's actually an exciting thing. We, we realize that this is a, a big deal, something we want, something we want to figure out more and more. Not a burden, but something we want to live out of love more and more. Faith becomes necessary for our relationship with God. So let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The text goes like this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, here we read this single verse. It gives us this certain kind of description, even a definition of sorts of what faith in God is, what Scripture understands when it talks about what it means for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to have faith in God. This is what faith is. So it's short, it's concise, but it's full of some fascinating ideas. So a verse like this, it's important for us to pause a little bit, to unpack a little bit, and make sure we understand what's going on here so that you and I can figure this out. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word faith, in the Greek, the word is pistis. 
The word apistis is not specifically a religious or spiritual word. It's a common word that means trust. It means confidence in. We use the word faith, but we talk about trust in something. We talk about confidence in something. The word pistis, the, the, the word from which it comes, is a word that actually means to be persuaded of. Isn't that interesting? So we're just talking about the word faith, what it means. What's the word that's used by the Holy Spirit to tell us about our relationship with God? Well, it's, it's pistis. It's trust and confidence. And it means to be persuaded of the things of God. Already we see something. We see that this notion in Scripture has nothing to do with blind faith. It has nothing to do with trying to concoct enough emotions to feel the right things to do something. It has nothing to do with that. Now, don't get me wrong. Faith in my life will actually form and shape my emotions. It will affect my emotions. My emotions will be involved and engaged, but that's not where faith starts. It's trust. It's confidence. It's the persuasion that the things of God are really true. It's about becoming persuaded about who and what I can really trust. We even use the word faith sometimes in our vocabulary this way. To break faith with someone means to break trust with that individual. We even use the word sometimes in that context. Faith. Okay, so faith is the assurance of what we hope for. The word assurance there in the Greek, it means to lay a substructure. It's a construction kind of word. It means to lay the foundation of a building. It's the assurance of things that are hoped for. It is the very solid rock upon which my hope stands. As a follower of Jesus Christ, my hope is not in my emotions. My hope is not in what I wish is true. My hope sits squarely and firmly on the solid rock of what really is actually true in Jesus Christ. It is the assurance of the things that I hope for. Faith is solid ground. We know it is solid ground. We don't pretend it's solid ground. We know it is solid ground. Faith assurance, and that it is the conviction of things we don't yet see. The Greek word for conviction here is very simple, and I love this. It's the Greek word that just means proof. It is the proof, the way you would speak of a mathematical proof, a logical proof. It is the assurance, the conviction of things that I don't see. So guys, get this. Our faith is a certain kind of proof. What do we mean by that? Okay, you're going to have to put up with Pastor Phil, the philosophy professor here for just a moment, but stick with me. I guarantee you. A proof is an earned result that demonstrates the truth of an idea. Faith is the conviction, the proof of things that we don't see. A proof is an earned result that demonstrates the truth of an idea. My faith is the assurance of my hope and the conviction, the proof of the things that I don't see. So when Paul says something like this to the Corinthians, he tells them at one point that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. 
If I live as if that is true, my life becomes a certain kind of proof that that really is actually true, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, guys, think about this for a second. All we did was talk about three words that the Holy Spirit uses to talk about faith, and immediately, I hope we're on different ground than what sometimes, the ground that we are sometimes actually on. We talked about three words, and immediately at least three things have happened. Immediately, we refute the idea that faith is anti-intellectual. You remember that notion? It is the great cop-out. It's the great reason that you have to not use your mind. Well, the only thing wrong with that is what the word actually means. It's what Scripture tells us my faith is. We immediately refute the idea that faith is anti-intellectual. Faith and reason are not opposites in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. They grow together in our walk with Jesus Christ. Here is something that I have learned that I am convinced is true in Scripture and am convinced is true in the life of the dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. We don't lose faith as we gain knowledge. What happens is the more I walk with Christ, the more my faith grows, the more I learn how to trust Him, have confidence that what He says really is true, the more my faith grows. And at the same time, guys, get this. My connection to reality through the gifts of intellect and reason that God has given me also grows. They grow at the same time. And both of them tell me the same things about Christ. He really is who He says He is. The story of God really is true. The kingdom of God really is the kingdom to live in. They grow at the same time. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, get this. Proverbs 1, 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wonderful and beautiful feelings inside of my heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of these kinds of things. So immediately we refute the idea that faith is anti-intellectual. Immediately we refute the idea that faith is blind. We close our eyes, we stop thinking, and we just do. That it begins in our feelings or that it's a magical incantation. And we immediately see that faith is this powerful connection to the way reality actually is. Faith is not just a powerful connection. It is a good connection in my heart to the way God actually made stuff. It's incredible. And guys, notice this about biblical faith. You can only have biblical faith in what is true. The way Scripture understands faith can only have this kind of faith in what is actually true. Now, this is important because, again, some of the cultural forces around us, the way that, the way that religious belief is treated in the world around us is often something like this. Well, that's great for you if you want to think that God exists and that gives you some kind of emotional or psychological support, that's great, but let's make sure we understand God doesn't really exist, but I'm glad that that works for you. It's not biblical faith. You know, the Christian can sort of pat the culture on the head, go, there, there, that's nice, God's real, and I'm going to live like He's real, right? We can only have biblical faith in what is actually true. Now, if you go hunting down Hebrews 11.1 1, in different translations, you're going to read all kinds of things because these words, not just faith, but as we read, assurance and conviction, they're, they're such rich words that different translations will treat them differently. Here's just a couple of others. The Christian Standard Bible, which is one of the more recent translations, 
says this, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. It actually just uses the word proof. The New Living Translation, which is a little bit closer to a paraphrase, says this, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Faith is. Let's think of faith biblically. Let's work on our faith biblically. And when we do so, we find some rich and powerful things in the Word of God, and then at work inside of our own lives. The very next idea in Hebrews chapter 11 is this, is, for by it, this kind of faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, here's what this is talking about. The saints who have gone before us have exercised this kind of faith, and as a result of that, they have found a certain kind of relationship of approval with God. That's what we mean by commendation. They find this relationship of approval because they trusted in Him, and they did what He called them to do, even when they had pressure to do the opposite of what God called them to do, even when it was very difficult for them to do what God asked them to do. They behaved this way in faith, and they found a relationship of approval with God. Why are we even talking about faith? Well, the end of chapter 10, the very last verse, gives us this sort of heading. In Hebrews 10.39, it says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's as if... At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, we are not of those who let go of God, shrink back in cowardice and and lose, but we are people who persevere in the faith, and as such, we preserve our souls. And it's, it's, it's as if in the back of the writer's mind, someone goes, well, what do you mean by faith? What is this faith? What is it like? So the writer says this, now faith is, begins to describe and talk about faith. So the rest of the chapter is actually full of examples of exactly that, what it means to have faith, move forward and endure, and preserve our souls. In fact, the next few verses are actually full of this term commendation, this notion of approval. It happens four times in four consecutive verses. In fact, the whole chapter, chapter 11, has a structure a little bit like this. It's this wonderful teaching device. Define the idea and show the idea. Someone asks the question, well, what do you mean by faith? And the writer of Hebrews says, well, let me define it for you, and then then let me give you examples of how it actually works. That's very much the structure of Hebrews chapter 11. So by faith, these people, the saints of old, received their commendation with God. And then verse 3, it says this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith we understand. Now, just stop at those four words again. Biblical faith is part of understanding reality. To understand something is to rightly perceive it, not make something up or feel something about it, but to rightly perceive it. By faith we correctly perceive that God created the universe. We don't yet physically see God. We will someday as followers of Christ. We know that God's the one who created the universe. The physical world is spoken into existence by the power and the wisdom of God who is the perfect spirit. 
Look at how John the disciple describes this in his gospel. In John 1, the first three verses, speaking of the Word of God in terms of Christ, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made by the Word of God. Here, speaking of Christ specifically. So, guys, notice this. As far as the Christian world is concerned, as far as Christian faith is concerned, knowing and believing that everything was created by God, not, not random, impersonal chance forces, but everything is created by God, what it does is it absolutely saturates creation with the presence and the power of God. It saturates everything around us with the fingerprint of God. It fills our lives with the work and the power and the purpose and the meaning of God Himself. If we remove God as the Creator, then all the meaning that we concoct becomes make-believe. We make it up, I make it up, but with God, The universe is filled with His presence, and our lives can be filled with the presence and the power of this actual God. By faith, we understand that it was God who created the universe, and guys, that changes everything. So these three verses um, introduce us to what's going to happen next in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. So let's read a few more verses beginning in chapter 11, verse 3. And you're going to notice a little bit of a pattern here, a pattern that shows up throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks." By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, Enoch did this. By faith, Noah did this. Having laid the groundwork for what faith is biblically, the writer of Hebrews now begins to walk through a bunch of different examples, a lot of examples that we can pick up in the Old Testament, and we can read their further stories, but he grabs the nuggets of their stories and says, this is what it means for us. Here's what it looks like to actually live by faith when we follow Jesus Christ. And so that phrase, by faith, It becomes the resonating idea through the rest of the chapter. By faith, by faith, people did, people did, people did. Now, just as a little bit of a side note, you might even want to think of this chapter a little bit like this. If you're looking for the kind of life that will leave a lasting legacy, chapter 11 is a great place to be. All of these people are gone. All of these people still speak to us because of their faith in God. 
their trust in Him, their persuasion that He really is good and right, and that now my life should follow suit. These are lives of lasting and powerful legacy, lives of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. So here we are. Faith prompts action. Faith in God, trusting Him, having confidence in Him, all these sorts of things. Faith is not just left to what we think about God and life, but faith necessarily turns into what we do, okay? We're convinced of certain things, persuaded of certain things. The life of our reason and mind actually can grow in Jesus Christ. It isn't left there because it becomes decisions, lifestyles. Faith is a doing thing inside of our lives. How many of you have taught a teenager how to drive a car? Okay. A lot of you sort of sheepishly raised your hands, a couple of you in a sling, right? You may say that you trust a teenager behind the wheel of the car, but will that trust put you in the passenger seat, right? If not, maybe you don't trust a teenager behind the wheel of a car. If I trust God, will that put my life into a certain kind of category where I'm actually going to make decisions because of that trust? I'm actually going to do things because of that trust. Biblical faith, guys, it's clear. This is what it means. If I trust, I will act. If I trust God, I will act in obedience to Him. One New Testament scholar said that there are three components to biblical faith. I'm going to mention these, and we'll probably come back to these one way or another throughout chapter 11. The three components are very simple, belief, trust, and obedience. I believe this is all true, and I'm going to trust that this is true, so now I'm going to obey. I'm going to live in the kingdom of God. I'm going to do what Christ has told me to do. Belief, trust, and obedience. A couple of pages over in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, James says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith turns into what we do with our lives. So here begins the pattern in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God than his brother Cain. So Cain and Abel, you can read that story in Genesis chapter 4. And in that story, both Cain and Abel come to God and they offer him a sacrifice. It says that Cain brought a sacrifice to God and Abel brought of his first fruits to God. And it says that God considered Abel's sacrifice acceptable, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. Now, Cain's reaction to that moment was to kill my brother. That was his reaction to that moment, right? So Abel, the text says, is dead. Now, now, this is interesting. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still spake. So Abel is dead, but we still learn from his story. Now, on, 
you know, in first glance, we would think, okay, yeah, Abel lived a very long time ago, and most people who have ever lived are now dead. So Abel's one of those guys, right? So we're still learning from his story. It's not just that. Abel died because his gift was acceptable to God. He died because he acted in faith, and it made somebody angry. Though he died that way, that faith speaks to us. It still teaches us something about our faith. This strikes a note for us, a theme in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's going to come back later. It's going to come back later in shocking fashion by the time this chapter is done. Guys, get this. A life of faith does not automatically mean everything will go well with you. It just doesn't. That's not what it means to have faith. Everything is sunshine and roses from here on out. It's not what it means. Abel died because of his faith. So why should I live a life of faith? Keep reading Hebrews chapter 11. Just stick with us. By the time we're done with this chapter, you're going to want to be one of these people. I guarantee you. Abel's life still speaks to us, not because of his long and prosperous life, but because of his faith. The next example is actually very different. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. That's largely what we know about Enoch. You read his genealogy in his short story in Genesis chapters 4 and 5. Whereas Abel dies the first death in Scripture, Enoch lives a long life and a long life in which he pleases God and his relationship with God is so tight that somehow God just decides, Enoch, before you physically die, I just want you with me. So he just brings Enoch up into his presence. That's Enoch's story. He was found with God, the text says, because he pleased God. That's an interesting thought. We ought to live so as to please God. This kind of thing is important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We're learning things from Scripture when we read through this. We ought to live the kind of life so that we please God. Why is that so important for us to hear? Because my life and your life in our culture is structured around how I can please whom? Me. How I can make sure this goes really well. The follower of Jesus Christ, however, is learning something else. I ought to live so as to please God. It is, in fact, the kind of behavior that we live out when we're actually living or acting as mature people in our meaningful relationships anyway. Not trying to live as people pleasers, that's a whole other thing. But learning how to avoid selfishness, envy, cruelty, so that our marriage relationship, our friendship relations, our, our family relationships can be as healthy as they can be. We act with someone else's good in mind. This is just maturity in our meaningful relationships. So how much more should our most significant relationship receive the same kind of attention? To live so as to please the God who saved me, the God who made me, the God who loves me. To live so as to please God. So, guys, our most significant relationship 
deserves exactly that kind of attention. Not as sycophants, not as robots, but as people who just love God. We want to live this way. We really do want to please God. We really do want this relationship to be intimate and deep and powerful and to be with God. This is Enoch's story. And it ends with this notion, he lives so as to please God. The writer of Hebrews kind of takes a step back from the examples and goes back into the definitions and and begins to describe faith faith force a little bit more in verse 6. He says, so without faith, in fact, it's impossible to please God. So anyone who wants to come close to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those that seek Him. So we learn that faith is critical. It's absolutely necessary for a healthy and growing relationship with God. Now, don't let this one bother you too much because we, we have to always recognize, guys, that in the, wor- the, the lives in which we lived, we're just going to walk through seasons of doubt or confusion. Honest doubt and confusion about our walk with God does, does not destroy that walk with God. Long-term, insincere skepticism, that destroys relationship with God. Honest doubting doesn't. But there is a path on which we can walk in which we have this kind of faith, we learn this kind of faith, we grow in this kind of faith. We know that God exists and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And we learn how to walk that kind of life. And let me tell you this. And I think in my life I have glimpses of this. I'm not going to tell you that this happens every day in my life, but I have glimpses of this. And every time I catch a glimpse of this, the more I want every day of my life to be like this. When I can begin to read Scripture, to worship, to pray, to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ from a position of convinced trust, incredible things open up. I see things I've never seen before. I experience things I've never experienced before. The Word of God is more alive than it has ever been, and I have been reading this thing for decades. When we learn how to approach God from a position of convinced trust, it's like saying this now, I'm convinced this is true, and I want to now understand it more and more. I want to figure out how to live this more and more. God responds to that attitude in incredible ways. Jeremiah 29 is a letter that God writes to His people as they've been taken off into exile. They've become slaves in the nation of Babylon. So as slaves, here's what God tells them in Jeremiah 29, verses 12 and 13. Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. There's something beautifully simple yet profound in that. You will seek me, and you will find me. You will pray to me, and I will listen to you. When you seek me with all that you have, you're going to find me. It's absolutely beautiful. So in this life of faith, learning how to please God, we need to do two things, it says. Believe that He exists. Well, That one's pretty straightforward, right? It's kind of hard to have a relationship with someone. You're just not even sure if they really exist or not. Heather's Heather's nice, but some days I'm not even sure she's really here, right? It's hard to have, and I don't mean that metaphorically. This is just an example, right? 
It's hard to have a relationship with someone you're not even convinced exists. You have to be convinced that God actually exists. And it says that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. The King James says a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We need to believe that God rewards those who seek after Him, who live this life of faith. And again, I've been reading Scripture. I've been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. I've been reading Scripture for a long time. As a teenager, I was a Bible quizzer. One of the books that we studied and memorized was the book of Hebrews. I still have a lot of memorized King James Bible of the book of Hebrews rolling around through my head. So I read a lot of this when I was a kid, and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And then the knee-jerk response to that sort of sense is, well, it's some sort of Christmas spread. There's some kind of thing that God gives, you know, it's some sort of merit badge that you get if you did this right and this right, you know, things start coming to you. story of Hebrews chapter 11 is that what God gives in reward is Him. What God gives in reward is more and more of Him. I guarantee you, when you have a taste of the presence and the goodness and the power of God, you will never be satisfied. You want more and more. God says, here's what I give. I give more of me and more of me and more of me. More of His life, His salvation, His transformation, meaning, purpose, growth, maturity. Scripture says every good gift comes from our Father above. This is how we are rewarded, so to speak, in our faith. Notice again in the structure of this chapter, Enoch lives this long life and he pleases God. And then Hebrews describes what it means to be a person of faith who pleases God. Then he, the, the writer of Hebrews says, and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us an example of someone who receives that reward. And the example is the example of Noah. Verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received the reward of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah hears from God that something utterly unheard of is going to happen. As of yet unseen, the text says. So God does not come to Noah and say, you know, you remember those spring storms last year? They're coming again, but twice as bad. It's not that. You've never seen this before, Noah. Turns out it's never going to happen again. But trust me, this is going to happen, and this is how you're saved. So Noah, in reverent fear, builds an ark and saves himself and his family. And he does so, as Hebrews 11 says, by faith. We read Noah's story in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. In the middle of that, this is the beginning of the flood story and how unique it is. In Genesis 7, part of the story goes like this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, they had very different lifespans then. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Nothing in Noah's past told him this would happen. It'd be a brand new event. The word that he had was God's word. And by faith, he did what God told him to do. It happened, and he and his family are saved. You go back and you read Noah's story, and the reason all of this happens in the world that surrounded Noah was an incredibly wicked, evil 
unrighteous world. For Noah to be building this ark for something that has never happened before based on the word of a God that no one else can see or believes in, that cannot be an easy thing for Noah to do. It's not a popular thing for Noah to do. Everybody's building arcs now because Noah did it, right? Surely it wasn't an easy thing to do. Here's something else we learned from Hebrews 11, what it means to live a life of faith. God's faithful servant, Noah, does something that just sticks out. It's just different. It's not just for the sake of being different. Keep Manitou weird. It's not just for the sake of being different, right? But it turns out that God's Word is just contrary to unrighteousness. The kingdom of God is just different than the kingdom of this world. And if I am trying to live in obedience in the kingdom of God, and my God gives me direction in life that is going to be different from the way the world around me wants it done, then if I'm going to live by faith, I'm just going to stick out. So we learn something else about faith that we see throughout Hebrews 11. Faith requires courage. It is the nature of faith in God to be pushed back upon. Why would you do that? That makes no sense. You're not doing what you used to do. A life of faith requires courage. What does that courage look like? Well, just keep reading Hebrews chapter 11. And you're going to read that kind of courage and examples of that courage over and over and over. So God rewards Noah. He becomes an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah now partakes in the kind of life that only God can give. And Noah's story is an incredibly dramatic example of this sort of thing. He, he literally actually lives because of his faith in God while everyone else perishes in their wickedness. He becomes an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, guys, some thoughts about this passage that we have read, this chapter that we're going to spend at least a couple of weeks in trying to figure out this life of faith. I want to make sure that we understand a couple of these things. First of all, our trust that God is right and that God is good, it just prompts decisions. It turns into things that we do with ourselves. It changes the way that we handle our relationships, handle our finances, handle our time, handle our education. It just prompts different kinds of lives. The kinds of actions that bring our lives into line with the will of God. Remember belief and trust and obedience. Notice this as well. Our trust that God is good and powerful gives us the courage of our faith. I'm safe in a life of faith with God. Even though Abel dies, because he dies in, he, because of his faithful behavior, he dies in God. He's completely safe. And we can find courage in a life of faith. To follow Jesus Christ isn't always the easiest thing to do but it's always the right and good thing to do for us. And then, guys, notice this, the kind of thing that's being opened to us. Our faith in God is the open door to an utterly unique life. I want to finish with a couple of verses of Scripture. Go to the end of chapter 11, chapter 12. 
Listen to how the writer of Hebrews wraps up this idea of a life of faith. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And in the end, friends, it's always again about Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.